Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 13, Threshold Concepts in Physical Education with Dr. David Aldous, Dr. Anna Bryant and Dr. Fiona Chambers. Welcome back everyone. We have got another new episode for you today and we've got a cast of thousands with us today, Tom, who uh, I'm going to introduce to you. In fact, they're going to introduce themselves in a moment, but we are back in the world of physical education. And those of you out there um, who are interested or are training in this area or indeed you might be working in this area, you may have listened a few weeks ago to another episode that we had out uh, where we interviewed Fiona Heath Diffie um, about working within uh, the health and well-being area of learning and experience. So hopefully this episode will work in tandem nicely with that one. We're here to talk to a room full of doctors. Tom, I feel a little bit uh, nervous (laughs) about to introduce them. Yes, we've got a cast of thousands geographically spread around the place. So I'm feeling nervous just to see if we can actually get them all recorded from their different locations today. (laughs) (laughs) So I am going to ask them to introduce themselves to you and to give you an insight into their background in a moment. But I would just like to say a warm welcome to Dr. Fiona Chambers, Dr. David Aldous and Dr. Anna Bryant. Welcome to you all. And the first question is, can you tell us who you are, a bit about your backgrounds in education and physical education and research? Fiona, I think we're going to you first, aren't we? Um, Hi, Emma. Really, really great to be here this afternoon. I'm ringing in from very rainy Cork uh, in the south of Ireland. And my background really is in education for for quite a long time. So over 25 years, particularly in the areas of physical education and science initially, because I was a teacher for many years, about 12 years. And then after that, I I segued into setting up a PE degree in uh, University College Cork. I'm currently the head of school of the School of Education in UCC, and uh, we have over 12 programs, 14 subject areas, lots and lots of people working in this in 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 our School of Education, and about a thousand to eleven hundred uh, students uh, involved there. I would describe myself as not just an educator, but also a design thinker. I'm a design thinking coach. I'm one of the very few across the world that works in the area of education and P. And I really enjoy my favorite, favorite thing to do is bringing lots of people together to innovate. And really, that's what this book is about. It's about innovation in the area of physical education with my wonderful colleagues, Dave and Anna. A very warm welcome to you, Fiona. It's really good to have you, particularly since uh, you are an incredibly busy and responsible person. So uh, thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast. I'm going to hand over to Dave now, who's going to introduce himself. Uh, hi Emma, hi Tom. So my name is David Aldous. I'm a senior lecturer at Cardiff Met. My history in physical education and education generally, I spent some time working in behaviour units, um, working with those who have probably been excluded from mainstream education for some years and using physical education to provide them with an educational experience. But since working at Cardiff Met, Uh, I mainly work around the areas of social theory and co-design methodologies and applying them to uh, challenges within physical health education, as well as uh, undergraduate and postgraduate teaching. One of my other jobs within the university is to um, co-lead on the physical health education for lifelong learning research group. 
uh, and more recently established the Centre for Active Wellbeing Research with Professor Di Crone. And what I do within physical health education is I'm really interested in seeing how we can advance our understanding, transformation and enactment of health and physical education for all communities. So that's my, my work. I really like working with communities in Wales at the moment on those issues. And I guess central to that process is a commitment to democratic forms of education where everyone has an equitable opportunity to engage with really innovative ideas and accessing those ideas to benefit their communities as well. Really good to have you, Dave, and a warm welcome to you too. And last but not least, someone who we work very closely with here in the IT department at Cardiff Met is Dr. Anna Bryant. Welcome. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm Anna Bryant. I'm the Director of Teacher Education and Professional Learning at Cardiff Met um, and the Cardiff Partnership. And as you're probably aware, the Cardiff Partnership is a collaboration between Cardiff Met, Cardiff University and the University of Oxford. Um, it's a role I started in May um, last year during the pandemic. And prior to this role, I was the Programme Director of the Sport and PE Programme in the School of Sport and Health Sciences. And I guess importantly as well, I spent a period of time teaching physical education um, at a Welsh medium school in Barry, which was a school from Morganwick. Um, essentially, in terms of my work, my work is focused on adopting a person-centred approach with teachers and learners in both primary and secondary schools. And the context of this work has really been framed around physical literacy. And some of the work is now focused around the new curriculum, um, around the health and wellbeing area of learning and experience. Um, more recently, some of my work has also been based around professional learning and inquiry, uh, specifically with Cardiff Met's involvement in the Welsh Government National Professional Inquiry Project or the NPEP project. So loads of this episode is going to centre around this book that's just come out, Chambers, Alders and Bryant, Threshold Concepts in Physical Education, a Design Thinking Approach. Now, it may be that people listening don't know what some of those things are yet, and we will come to that. But first of all, how was it that the three of you came to collaborate on this book? What's the story behind it? Okay, Tom. So um, I guess if I take you back a couple of years... The process really started when Fiona was appointed as our external examiner for the Sport and P programme in the School of Sport and Health Sciences. And I believe it was really the first time the Fiona visited as an external examiner. The three of us went for a coffee down Cardiff Bay before her return flight home. And it was really that conversation, that coffee was where the magic or the seed for this book was planted. I vividly remember the discussion and we were putting the world to right within our own discipline. And I think in particular, some of the key critical questions we were asking each other centred around, you know, as a discipline of physical education, were we clear on what we were trying to achieve? Were we trying to overclaim what we were trying to do and achieve? And what was really possible for all children and young people to achieve before they left school? So... I guess the, the most important question for us to ask and to establish with our listeners now is is this idea of threshold concepts and, and what that's all about. Uh, what is a threshold concept and why are they so valuable to physical education? So any discipline that we think about, they're a discipline because they have these things called threshold concepts. So that's the only reason they're ever called a discipline. And I know that Anna in her previous answer mentioned that we, we believed that PE was a discipline, but actually we were really 
wondering about that ourselves to see, is that actually the case? So if I give you some examples of threshold concepts, first of all, and I'll unpack it a little bit for you. If we look at particular disciplines, so for example, in maths, a threshold concept is um, complex numbers. If we look at design, ambiguity is a concept that you have to grasp if you're a designer. If you don't grasp it, you can't call yourself a designer. In law, it's precedence, it's opportunity cost in economics, it's entropy maybe in physics. So every discipline you can think about, if you were to lay them out on a table, every discipline that we know of has these threshold concepts. And weirdly, we couldn't actually claim that for physical education. We couldn't literally sit down and go, boom, that's what PE does. And we felt that often that was a problem because we felt that the reason that our subject area is often not valued is because we don't have these, we haven't called them out. We can't say definitively, physical education offers this or these threshold concepts. So threshold concepts, when they're mastered, they enable students to look at problems in completely new ways and to think, practice and talk in a manner of scholars of that discipline. And the reason they're called threshold concepts is because you literally cross a threshold when you learn them and you can never unlearn them. An example, maybe from maybe the fact that we're involved in movement, riding a bike, you never forget how to ride a bike. So once you've learned it, it's not something that you can ever unlearn. It's there, it's embodied, etc. So what it would be described as by Meyer and Land, who've done an awful lot of work in this area, it's, it's like a portal. So it opens up a new and previously inaccessible way of thinking about something. And it represents a transformed way of understanding or interpreting or viewing something. And without that, the learner cannot progress in that particular discipline or ever call themselves a scholar of that discipline. So what's really interesting about it is there are particular characteristics of threshold concepts. And you have to have all of them in place for you to say, tick, that is definitely a threshold concept. So they have to be transformative. So they have to lead to a significant shift in the perception of the subject. So it's like a big aha moment, a powerful insight, which helps you to change your identity or perspective, values, feelings or attitudes. It's also, which is really interesting for us in our discipline, it's performative. It's about being inactive. And it's, think, it's basically where they can apply, the learner who has grasped the concept can apply to new situations, by thinking and talking about it in a personal way and being able to apply it to multiple situations, okay? It's irreversible, as I said earlier, you can't undo it. It's integrative, so it actually integrates with other concepts that you know, so it just doesn't, it's not a standalone. Um, it's also bounded, that in other words, it's within a particular limitation and it basically, it's attributed to particular disciplines. As I said earlier, there should be ones, as we thought when we were having our chat, and, and across that, that following year, uh, there should be ones that we can literally tag as physical education only. The one that I most like, the characteristic I most like is the one around troublesome knowledge. It shouldn't be an easy passage through the eye of the needle. It should be very hard to grasp. It's not something you just click your fingers and you have it. It takes ages and often, and we know this because we're educators, they, they, the learner often has to mimic or copy before they start to feel confident to, to really understand the concept they're grappling with. And then ultimately they move forward and they actually manage to start applying it to their different situations. Uh, the other two are to do with reconstitutive, 
which means that it, it is a combination of being transformative and integrative. In other words, it becomes part of your way of naturally uh, behaving and working within that discipline. And I really like this one as well, is it's discursive. So it's always a change in language, which is something that Dave is going to, to turn to. So you know the person has it by the way in which they express their understanding of it. And it's not mimicked. It's they're very confident and comfortable around uh, how they do that. So it is they have eight features, as I've said. And I want you to imagine this even makes it even more lovely for educators. Typically, when somebody is hasn't crossed quite crossed the threshold as yet, they occupy a liminal space. It's a really interesting space where we as teachers are very confident and comfortable to work in when we support uh, learners. So they're in that space. They're quite confused. They're working through bits and pieces uh, to try and grasp whatever the concept is. And then they make that wonderful transition across that, that threshold through that portal to that new uh, level of understanding. So it's, it's quite, quite interesting. And what I would say to you, just, just in closing, is that we have figured out that actually we don't call PE a discipline. I know that's a, a news, news for everybody. It's not a discipline, actually. So we would describe it as a cross-discipline because it is informed by so many other disciplines. But what's beautiful about PE, what makes it really powerful from the work that we've done, is that there is an interstitial or connecting space or a, a sweet spot, if you like, where not only are we informed by threshold concepts from other disciplines, but we also can call a few out for ourselves. And that's what this book is about. It's the sweet spot. We're calling out what's situated in that lovely sweet spot. And what we we're inviting people to do as we as we chat through this now with, with yourselves is we invite people to start getting more curious about what, what we're talking about. And, and we hope that they will play with what we've we've come up with and test it and trial it and, and see how it works for them. Now, this is interesting because this comes at a time, a particular time where we're in the midst of education reform here in Wales. And it could be that maybe 20 years ago, if, if a PE teacher or a school teacher heard all of that definition, they might have said, above my pay grade, Gov, you know, not my problem. As we know from some really interesting conversations with our colleague Fiona Heath-Diffie from, from the PE, PGCE, this is a time when we're having to do some really big thinking about our disciplines and our role and how we do things. So, Dave, this really interesting set of concepts that Fiona's just kind of explained to us, how does this, how does this work in the PE kind of context while we're having these big conversations in the context of education reform? I think it works in so many ways, Tom, I think, particularly in Wales at the moment. Um, going back to Anna's earlier point about how the book evolved, I think um, one of the reasons why I was so excited to write this book with Anna and Fiona was what we were hearing and seeing within the, the PE community and from our own students was that they had a, you know, this, this inkling that change was happening. Uh, and we, we know change is happening. We've been told change is happening in Wales in education for some time now. That, that's not a message that's new to anyone in the community anymore. The challenge was, and we felt what the challenge was, this was, did we necessarily have the concepts and the ideas to enable both uh, current educators and future educators to respond to that challenge imaginatively, creatively, and on their own terms? Sometimes this idea of agency and professional learning is bestowed upon the discipline. But what we wanted to do 
was really create something that would enable not the educators for tomorrow, but the educators for five to 10 years. So we really saw this as a really great opportunity to start that process. And to give you some sort of context, what we do with Threshold Concepts, what they enable the, the practitioner and the educator to do is to respond to key challenges in imaginative ways. And, and to give a real, I'll, I'll talk about this a bit more, a real kind of set of languages that enable them to evolve practice, but on their own terms. So we're quite excited about this. We're quite excited about the offering threshold concepts allows um, for the discipline of PE and the PE community to actually start responding to some of the challenges that the new curriculum, for example, presents in Wales. But curriculum reforms happening globally. Education systems are responding to um, big global challenges in different ways. So we don't just see this as a kind of Welsh problem, although that's a really kind of contemporary thing that we are working with. We can see this having application for educators uh, around the globe. And it's about how do we respond to the challenges that we're facing. And so the consequence of the book is it's making us really rethink how we might consider professional learning to look like in the future? What kind of concepts and ideas do we need to present to students at undergraduate and postgraduate level, for example, as well as the opportunities for those in the classroom, of course, to begin to start engaging with this complexity, but with, with kind of concepts that enable them to do that. Thank you very much, Dave. It strikes me that threshold concepts as a concept in itself seems to be something that any teacher trainee needs to get their head around, particularly if they're working in secondary within a disciplinary environment. So um, it's fascinating. I'm already starting to consider myself, you know, what, what would I identify as a threshold concepts within drama? And I don't think I've ever really had that conversation with colleagues. It's mad, isn't it? It seems like something that's fundamental. It's really bizarre, isn't it? I mean, it's only till we started to work with the term did I go back and reread the, the new curriculum guidance. And quite subtly, the words threshold concepts and design thinking come up into the guidance. We're almost being asked to as professionals when we read the new curriculum to think about those concepts that will allow for this enactment of this ambitious curriculum. But, you know, before working with Fiona and Anna, would you're absolutely right. Would I know what the threshold concepts for physical health education are? No way. Would I know what how to actually start even using that complex language in a way that transforms practice? Is that necessarily something that we've taught to our undergraduate students, for example? So I absolutely agree with you, Emma. I think there's so much excitement around this concept itself and its potential to advance professional learning in Wales and other countries as well. And I suppose a major contribution to that is your book. Um, so we're going to kind of orientate us, ourselves back now to the book. And I wonder if you could provide us with a, a brief overview of the book and how it's potentially going to be speaking to those out there who know nothing about Threshold Concepts. So they pick up your book. What can they expect to get from it? So the book itself is an applied book. So what we wanted to do with the book was speak to a range of audiences. So it's written for 
both those who are practicing in education in schools and primary schools, but and then also for those who are working in a university context as well. So one of the kind of key principles to the book was that it had to have a theory to practice, if you like, core element to it. So the book itself is divided into three sections, and Anna and Fiona will explain the other two sections. But the, the book starts with a, a kind of overview of um, some of the key concepts that underpin the use and uh, threshold concepts and the use of design thinking. So the first section of the book really talks about what current concepts do we actually use within physical education itself? So the first chapter, for example, we talk about, we use Basil Bernstein's work to really start to understand what we call the languages that underpin physical education in the 21st century. So we did a kind of schematic and what we saw was like other disciplines, physical education isn't actually a discipline, as Fiona said, it's this space where different languages from science, philosophy, sociology, psychology, all come to kind of collide in the kind of practice of movement within the pedagogical context of PE. And so what we did in that first section, what we really wanted to do was actually highlight and start to question some of those languages. So for example, some of the existing languages of physical education go back to uh, Arnold's dimensions of movement. Well, if I talk to my dad, he was, without carbon dating him, that's something that he was introduced to when he was at university. Yet what we see in almost contemporary physical education is that we're coming back to those old languages, in a sense, ph philosophical languages. What we do notice as well is that some of these existing languages have been for some time informed by what we might call biomedical models or languages, very scientific languages that enable us to diagnose and predict and explain and describe, but do they necessarily give us the space to transform and explore, or encourage learners and educators to do that? So the first chapter is really outlining this idea within physical health education um, really starting to question or ask the reader to question, what languages do I have? What languages have I been taught previously? What concepts do I draw upon in order to inform my own practice? Am I given those languages or am I comfortable with actually creating my own languages? Which is something that um, Bernstein has saw as really fundamental to a, a democratic form of education, to really to be able to understand a concept and apply it on your own terms is a fundamental element of what Bernstein calls de democratic forms of education. And we, got, we, we start to purposefully start to sensitively challenge some of those kind of key concepts. So building upon that, then essentially the second section of the book, we've got seven exploratory movement case studies, which have used the Chamber's design thinking approach, essentially to address the design challenge which was in this instance to identify threshold concepts within physical education. I think this is really exciting for us because we had contributions in this section from UK, Ireland, Canada, Belgium, Japan, Portugal, Norway, France and Australia. So it's quite an international flavour to some of these movement case studies. Um, and each then chapter had writing pods and these were comprised of academics and a practitioner. And they examine then following areas of human movement 
And some of these movements are quite interesting and they're not necessarily associated with traditional pay activities. You know, with the, some of the activities are those that are quite cool and funky for the young people themselves. So we've got things like parkour, dance, gymnastics, outdoor education, martial arts, Gaelic games and netball as well. And in particular, the writing groups of pods drew upon their own research, their experience of teaching children and young people, and perhaps any experiences of educating current and future PE teachers. The contributions to the book that they made were also informed by their own biopedagogies, and therefore some, for example, drew on particular frameworks and theories. The lab and movement framework was particularly one that a couple of the authors drew upon, others drew upon physical literacy, um, one of the Scandinavian concepts that I really like is fruits live. Don't know if I've said that right, but it essentially translates to open air life, which is so pertinent in the current, you know, pandemic, which we're all sort of <laughs> moving towards. Uh, we've also got a really cool chapter then on the social and emotional aspect of PE. And ultimately, then each chapter proposed ideas on threshold concepts within the context of movement activity that they looked at through their lens. And what did I particularly love about this process? Well, first, it brought me back to my days as a PE teacher. I'd really visualise when I was teaching PE and I'd how, how I'd really try and get an environment for all children and young people to move well, uh, particularly within, you know, an empowering environment. I was trying to think then and it got me thinking, what were the key things in terms of movement that would help a child or pupil? Were there any shortcuts? And I think we also had a lot of fun with this process. I remember Dave and I, um, in some of our pilot to the process, we did some piloting in the swimming pool where we filmed each other in the swimming pool and then asked each other questions around how the movement actually felt. And this was quite challenging, you know, in itself, in articulating, you know, what things felt particularly good. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was quite a fun process uh, to undertake. So I think I'm handing over to Fiona now for the third section of the book. Sure. So, so as, as Anna has pointed out, really the, the kernel of the book is section two. So it's, it's the idea where we, we wanted to get very close to the action. And that's what design thinkers do. They want to be in there and finding out what's going on with, as we call them, it sounds a cold term, but end users. And for us in education and in physical education, they're the pupils. So if you, if, if, as, as Anna articulated there, the people at the centre of section two were really those people who were proficient in activities and they were using explicitation to, to describe how they felt when they were moving well. And that, that's what Anna has called out there. So that was more the grassroots kind of data that was coming through with really nice kind of, I suppose, insights from, from the, the academic uh, team that were working with, with that, that person who was moving. And we chose very, very carefully those different areas of human movement to try and flush out maybe different experiences that could be there. And then, as, as, as we've said, section three was the, here we go. It's, it's like how we, we managed to, to figure what were these threshold concepts and we did a number of really interesting things, we think. We used dialogic and discourse analysis of everything that came from those movement case studies. And we used a concept board because we were all working remotely at that stage. And we were literally putting everything down there, um, trying to, to analyze every piece of data that would come from those seven movement case studies, all of those insights, and trying to say, okay, what are they saying to us? Uh, can we we basically generate really interesting theories from what we're hearing? And I found that process just absolutely, it was like 
the most energizing thing I'd say that I, I have done in the last in the last number of months, certainly, because it was so exciting and so important. And what we then did, because I think there's no point in staying up in the abstract. You've got to pull that down into reality. And in our chapter 12, it was really about how are you going to teach these things? What are our ideas around how would you go back in and teach? So if you can imagine that we found out how it felt and the explicitation stuff in section two through those movements case studies, that's great. We discovered theories that might explain them, our our threshold concepts. Now we want to go back in armed with those and say, okay, this is how you'd actually teach intentionally for these things. That it's not just something that happens by accident. This is something that teachers could literally go in and say, these are four concepts that we we want to, to to get across to you. And the four concepts that we we came up with were corporeal reflexivity, corporeal aesthetics, self-actualization through human movement, and eudaimonia through human movement. And then finally, in our in our final chapter, we basically just pointed to where would we go to in the future with this. And and I suppose, um, and I know we'll talk about it a little bit later. This is all about playing with them now. It's, it's not a finished journey. This is an iterative journey. Uh, we've opened a conversation. That's what this is, it's a conversation to see, do these stick? Do they make sense? What do they look like in classrooms? Because Anna, as she's rightly pointed out, it is all about moving well and moving often. It's all about that joy of movement. And we want to instill that in every single child leaving our care. That's what this is all about. So if we can help in that way, having these handrails and um, these four threshold concepts that, that will, will certainly um, help us. And the last comment I'm going to make is that design thinking informed not only the approach that was taken in section two, it has informed every single element of this book. We use design thinking to design the book and then we use design thinking within the book. So it's kind of literally like a Russian doll, if, as it were, in terms of how we do this. Now, I'm glad you ended on that note, because I think we've already given the listeners loads to think about. You know, I suspect anyone listening to this is already trying to work out what their threshold concepts are for their subject specialism or whether their subject discipline is indeed a discipline. You know, these are all things that are blowing the the conversation wide open. But it would be a shame to kind of ignore the second half of the title of your book, A Design Thinking Approach. So just in case anyone has any space left in their brain for exciting things, what do we actually mean by a design thinking approach, Fiona? Yeah, so as you probably gathered, I'm a bit passionate about this. Um, So I describe design thinking as human-centered innovation. It it uses a process and it uses um, like Carl Dweck's growth mindset. And all of this happens within a very empowering space. So they're the three elements. You need a process, you need this mindset, and you need a space. It was actually developed by uh, an engineer, um, an architect, and our fabulous reflexive practitioner, Donald Schoen. So Herbert Simon, Nigel Cross, and Donald Schoen started developing these ideas probably in the 70s. It was dragged off into business and engineering and other areas. And we have been trying to wrestle it back into education uh, for a while. I would say that the process always begins with empathy. That's why we went straight to the teachers, academics, and the young people. That's where we wanted to situate this. So you must figure out what's the issue here. So we felt that PE was sidelined, the poor cousin, the whatever you want to call it. And we thought, hang on a second, where do we go and where do we empathize and who does it matter to? And for us, it always matters to the, the children. 
to young people. That's where it always is situated. So when you do design thinking, um, you, you spend ages in the process on the actual problem. What's the issue? You can't go in with a gut feeling saying, oh, I think it's just that we're not valued or oh, I think it's blah, blah, blah. You've got to really figure this out and hence section two in our book. So we spend 80% of our time on that. And humans tend to, me included, jump straight to solution. And in design thinking in the process, you don't go near a solution until you've sorted out the problem space. And typically that involves understanding, observing and forming a tighter problem uh, focus for, for what's, what's the issue at hand. Then we move into a really magnificent, glorious solution space, which is all about ideation. It's about coming up with prototypes. It's about testing them. And this is not a linear process, any of this, problem space or solution space. It's all about literally iterating, moving forward, backwards, until you have something that's worth testing and evaluating, etc. So it's, it's a really empathic kind of um, exciting, very, very exciting process. I would say that if I was to describe it, a, a design thinker, design thinkers are fantastic storytellers and they want to have an impact. They design with their end user and they design for their end users. They are really open, they're very optimistic, and they're not afraid to fail and take risks. And I would say that they are the most curious people you could possibly imagine. They're always asking questions. The, the answers are fine, but they're always curious to go elsewhere. So design thinking is something that I have used, not only in this book, but I've used it in research, I've used it in strategy development, in my teaching, in every single aspect. I know Dave uses it a, a huge amount as well. And any project that I have design thinking as, as a, a focus with, within that project, I try to build capability among the team. So now we have seven teams within this book who all can do it. We can all do it as authors. And on we go. So it's spread the word. It's like evangelical almost. I think to give testament to those ideas, Tom, one of the things I'm doing with Fiona Heath Diffie at the moment is using the principles from the book to work with secondary PE teachers in redesigning and designing their own curriculum. So we're we're taking the ideas from the book and we're we're applying them in real time practice over a series of workshops uh, and really living those values and principles Fiona's just talked about. And it's been so exciting to see how those uh, teachers have start to become seeing curriculum design in a new way for example and, and starting to take big ideas and ideas that they have and starting to use that to translate the new curriculum and come up with their own ideas the creativity in the, those workshops has been mind-blowing what design thinking does i think this idea of thinking and questioning it puts you right on the on the periphery of your own kind of thought processes so I've been going through a design thinking approach. The th first times I went through it, you become uncomfortable. But what, you know, going back to, harking back to something like Dewey would say, you know, creativity is an essence of crisis and crisis needs creativity. So you need both of those things to actually create new stuff. And I, I think what's really nice about design thinking, it sensitively socializes someone through those processes. I just want to get back now, Anna, to um, the idea that was mentioned a bit earlier on about this book ultimately being for 
practitioners who need those kind of hands-on approaches or how is that going to translate in practice and I can hear them in my ears saying this is all very well and good but you know what are the what are the pedagogies that we can use to support educators in translating threshold concepts into their own practice? Absolutely Emma and I think I'll build upon what Fiona has already mentioned around this you know in the third section of the book we were very aware that we, yes, we'd come up with these four threshold concepts, but they really needed to be translated into practice. And it wasn't enough for us just to simply call these out. We really had to think about what were the pedagogies, realities, and the possibilities really around this. So in order to do this, what we did was that we played with um, Calvino's six translator principles. And these included things like, for example, that lightness, educators are required to be agile in their thinking, quickness, the energy that educators would need in moving through this process, uh, visibility, carelessness, and the need for time and space where they might, educators would need to engage playfully with this. And I think we use then these principles to draw through an illustrative example. And in this particular instance, the illustrative example we've used was mapping the conceptual possibilities within the pedagogic realities of the new Welsh health and wellbeing area of learning and experience. And we, in the illustrative example, we take the reader through the five stages of design thinking. So for example, the first phase, the compassion phase, is where they need the space and time, and really the, the, for educators to reflect and empathize upon the social, cultural, and biological needs of their learners. So they really here needed some reflective conversations, for example, with their departments. The next phase then, the second phase, the ideation phase, we acknowledge that the educators have the opportunity to engage with the range of resources where they would get their ideas from, but also from experiences of other educators. And in this particular sort of aspect, we looked and provide ideas around one of the threshold concepts. So we've just focused for this particular example on corporeal reflexivity and then we provide an example of perhaps of why, what learning outcomes might look like for a scheme of work within that particular concept. The next phase then is the prototyping. And we're very aware that long term, we really want the educators to generate their own tools. But equally talking, we, we're aware that they need ideas to start somewhere. So within this section, in this part of the book, we draw two particular perhaps frameworks or ideas in terms of pedagogies they might draw upon as ideas to play with, not as the only ideas as well. And one of those was the solo framework, and this is Biggs and Tang's work, which essentially is a framework that breaks down the task so that the learner can clearly see what is required for them to make that leap across that threshold from performative to proactive you know, conception. It's really useful, you know, the solar framework in all disciplines, but we in particular built on Dudley Zadal's solar taxonomy, where he used it in a high quality P environment, particularly in assessment and learning within P. But I think more broadly, it's really, really useful, you know, across the disciplines within an IT context. And I think in particular, this could be used as a planning tool as to how to plan whatever your threshold concepts might be within that particular discipline or interdiscipline as it might be. Another example that we use within the book then of some pedagogies in order to draw out some of these threshold concepts was an individual peer feedback movement conversation. It's quite a simple idea here. So essentially a pair of students might film each other or pupils in a movement activity 
And then following the filming, they'd engage in a movement conversation. Now, here we suggest to the reader, you know, that they might consider going through some of Lloyd's principles, um, where essentially, you know, one of the pupils would ask questions to each other, for example, moving from what they're familiar with, really to get to grips with what they're unfamiliar with through asking questions around the function of the movement, all the way through to how the flow of the movement itself felt. So, for example, some of the examples of some of those questions might be, tell me about your movement clip in the video. What did you notice? You know, and then how in control are you? All of the way, way through then to how does your movement feel? What does it feel like? Um, do you feel anything from within? So really trying to get the pupil or the learner to articulate their reflections or their reflexivity. And essentially, this is a reflexivity mo movement, a moment, sorry, where they get to answer their individual questions. Um, and hopefully through this process, you know, the, the learner themselves can really develop, you know, and they learn what they learn about their own movement, but also they learn a lot about their partner's feelings around their performance and demonstrating empathy then, which is one of the key aspects of the new curriculum for Wales as well. So, yeah, hopefully. And then the final stage of that is for the educators themselves to implement and evaluate um, and to see what works, what doesn't work, and to revisit that cycle then. Well, thank you very much to you all. An absolutely rich and abundant deep discussion of your work that I'm sure has given our listeners plenty to go off and, and read more about, to think about and to hopefully discuss in their settings. You've all been incredibly generous and well behaved <laughs> for this podcast by doing your homework. <laughs> So um, we're going to break from uh, the usual way we do this. And so we normally kind of go through each of our three areas one by one. But I think probably better to go person to person and ask you, what have you got to try? What have you been reading or, or enjoying recently? And how do you look after your well-being? And first person on my list is Dave. OK, so I've got two things to try, if you can. Uh, do try open water swimming at any time of the year, even if it's surfing, paddleboarding, just go in the sea. It's really good for the soul. Um, more recently, if you can, try home learning with a four-year-old in a second language, in my case. That's been good for my soul as well to see what learning actually means for them. Reading, what am I reading at the moment? Uh, I'm reading a book called Sacred Hoops. Spiritual Lessons of a Hardwood Warrior by Phil Jackson. So for those basketball fans out there, uh, Phil Jackson was a very esteemed coach. He was Michael Jordan's coach at the Chicago Bulls. And he talks about how Zen and spirituality and ideas from indigenous cultures in North America informed his, his leadership style. So I was reading that. What was the other one, Emma? It was... How you look after your well-being. Although you did say open water swimming. That's probably going to do it. <laughs> so how do I look after my own well-being? I try and move every day. I try and go into the sea most weeks. It's getting a bit chilly at this moment in time. And the other one is to just really just be very kind to myself. Balance. So I think that's what I learned from term one. Balance is everything and enjoy everything with a smile and, and not to be too serious about myself. Thank you, Dave. We definitely need to talk about surfing at some point. Anna, same same list to you. Oh, absolutely. So I think something to try, um, a movement activity outdoors in nature, in the great outdoors. You know, at the moment, I think I'm doing a little bit of running, you know, and I'm just really enjoying when I go off track and just, you know, have, have a river alongside me. 
but it's been really nice as well during this lockdown period to just you know go on the bike and go off road a little bit you know really pleasing so yeah but importantly i think try something or a movement activity that fits with your leisure lifestyle i think that's really important as well um in terms of reading um something i revisited during the lockdown period was really easy book, really easy reading. David Henry's book. He was the 400 meter hurdle. He was an um, Olympic champion, since a psychologist. And the title of his book is How to Help Children Find the Champion Within Themselves. Why was this relevant to me during lockdown? Well, I think it's really good because it helps get the best after your, your children and the psychology behind that in an empowering environment. But more so, also, you know, it, uh, it's a successful business person, and I think really good in terms of some of the questions you ask from a management perspective you know listening carefully the types of questions you ask within a meeting so that was quite you know enlightening for me and then finally something around well-being live your life with passion love and well-being and I think similar to what Dave said one of the approaches I'm trying now is that you know, when you're busy in these, some of these meetings and you're busy with you know some of these external meetings but just think of the fact that I get to do this I'm really fortunate that I'm in a position I get to be in this position you know so it's just that mindset essentially. Thanks Anna and Fiona over to you. Okay so um, just I'm going to do them kind of in a mixed order so at the moment I'm reading some work by Otto Scharmer and he has come up with this notion of theory U, which is about uh, futurism it's about predicting the future following digital breadcrumbs, understanding what's happening into the future. Quite interesting because it just fits very nicely with, um, I suppose, the, the the chaos of what's going on around us, but taking note of people within the environment and how we interact with the environment. So I think really, really nice and very informative, etc. cetera. Uh, the other thing I suppose I'm listening to at the moment is the doc pod, which again links to life and the future. I don't know, I have this thing about strategy and because we're at such a strange place at the moment with the pandemic and all of these tectonic shifts culturally. It's just to try and, you know, I suppose, stabilise ourselves a little bit and to have the confidence to move forward. I would say that just kind of things that I think about a lot, I suppose, it's called a mirror of questions. It's something that I read typically every day. It's by John O'Donoghue. And it's a set of questions you ask at the end of your day to see how your day has been. And it, it's a very philosophical thing, but it also positions yourself nicely for the next day. In other words, value every moment that you have um, on this planet and what you're going to do with it. I would say also that uh, for me, I try to do something, strangely, that scares me every day in a good way and challenges me and keeps me learning. And what steadies me is going for a run, going for a walk, being in nature. And I would encourage people at the moment to keep learning, keep moving and keep connecting. You, you, you may not realise how important it is for people at the moment. They're, people are quite isolated and, uh, you know, it's just to try and, and, and keep, keep our community together, look out for each other. It's not just about physical safety or, or, or any of that. It's about our well-being and uh, minding each other a little bit. An absolutely bumper crop of uh, homework slots there. And actually, it probably shouldn't let this one go because we've talked about this in the past, Emma, in some of our short slots. It's been fascinating to hear the three of you speak so passionately about, you know, what an amazing experience it was for you to collaborate on this piece of work and all the interesting things that you've uncovered as a result of it. And it didn't kind of escape my attention that it all started with a random cuppa. And we've talked about the importance of that before. And of course, no one's getting any random cuppa 
campus at the moment and it leads me to wonder just how many fantastic projects and ideas and creative things have been lost because of our lack of random cuppers I don't know what you think about that yeah it's, it is an interesting point but then what's very interesting at the moment though is we're in such a, a moment of chaos that people do gather around an idea very quickly so if you've got a kind of a shiny thing and you say hey what do you think of this people will gather and people will help it's kind of an interesting time but it's not as you call it it's not that random as you say Tom it's not random anymore yes. yeah yeah I wouldn't yeah I, I would say the the random nature of how the book happened was really random I think you know there was always the idea of bringing someone as brilliant as Fiona into Cardiff Met and that's what we were aspiring Anna and I had long conversations of you know, we wanted to be, bring big rock and rollers into our, our, our program to make to make us learn better and to give an experience to our students. So, you know, the coffee bit was random. The writing of a book was certainly random. Working with brilliant people is less random. But I, I fully acknowledge that the spaces for us to do that are, are being really tightened at the moment. And I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that we need to really hold on to are the ideas that giving people the opportunity to bring in new ideas into online spaces. So if I am going to be online, I want it to be in meetings where, yes, we have to do the administrative elements, but we need spaces where we are thinking about not next week or two weeks, but what will the world look like in six months? You know, we're going to change and we're going to move out of this situation. And at that point, we are going to need brilliant ideas so I think we're going to need to really hold on to the idea that we need spaces for that creativity and encouraging and supporting our students and our staff to do that as well. Well, what an absolute pleasure it has been to speak to you about all of your research and life more generally. I, I do feel enriched having having got the opportunity to listen and talk to you all. So I, I count this as a a bit of a virtual cuppa that's quite indulgent as well. I wish we had something uh, stronger. Maybe next time. <laughs> so thank you all so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, um, you know, getting to hear about what you've been researching and we look forward to hopefully having you on down the line and finding out a bit more about what's coming next. So the last thing to say is Dr. Fiona Chambers, Dr. David Aldous, Dr. Anna Bryant, stay well, and we'll see you very soon. You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guests this episode were Dr David Aldous and Dr Anna Bryant from Cardiff Metropolitan University and Dr Fiona Chambers, Head of the School of Education at University College Cork. Podcast artwork was by Beth Blanford and the music was by Cameron Stewart. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching. <laughs>